this morning by this uh, beautiful and refreshing bottle of water. I don't know how, how many of you have dealt with the change of the seasons, and um, I don't know what it is, but my voice has been fine Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, <clears throat> and I wake up Sunday. And, you know, the truth is you have to kind of use what you got. There's a lot of truth to that. And even when you're not feeling well, you got to put a smile on your face because God is bigger than your ailment. I know this week there are people who have not felt well and who have dealt with um, interesting circumstances. Uh, even this morning, you know, when you come to church, it's always an interesting time because you, you get about 50 prayer requests before the service starts of uh, family situations and health situations. And the truth of the matter is, you have to use what life hands you. You've got to be happy about that. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, as a matter of fact. We are continuing our series on learning what it means to honor God with everything that we have. Not just our finances, but honoring God with everything. We'll find ourselves in Matthew chapter 25, the same chapter we were in last week, as we looked at the parable of the um, sheep and the goats. And in Matthew 25, chapter 25, something really interesting happens. You have three parables that Jesus tells in rapid-fire succession. He tells the parable of the ten virgins. He tells the parable of the talents. He tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. And all of these parables have to deal with the theme of judgment. In the choir, it sounds like all three of them are singing the same note. And while they all make similar points, the places where they're not identical is really where the importance comes out. Why would Jesus tell three parables in a row saying basically the same thing? Well, we'll find out this morning. Last week as we looked at the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus said, as much as you have done it to the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. And he's asking us the question, do you love your neighbor? And you know the way that he says that you know that you love your neighbor? What you do with your stuff. How how are you helping people? Your stuff is your material possessions, your finances, your time, your abilities. How are you helping people who are hurting? How are you loving your neighbor? And that's a good emphasis. We, we need to be reminded of that. Uh, the Bible says not to grow weary in doing good, and sometimes that happens. But today, as we look at the parable of the talents, we've, we've reversed the order, because the parable of the talents comes before the parable of the sheep and the goats, and we've reversed that order. Because I think sometimes in serving our neighbor, we forget the emphasis of the parable of, of the talents, and that is, what are we doing not with our stuff, What are we doing with the stuff that God has given to us? What are we doing with the things God has given to us? And as we're loving our neighbor and using God's resources faithfully, are we loving God? You know, it's possible to do a good work and God not have anything to do with it. It's easy to do something with your stuff that's good, but to to not be expressly saying, this is a way I'm showing my devotion and commitment to God. And that's what the 
parable of the talents emphasizes. And so we'll be in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And I want to pray this morning that God will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to dream about doing greater things for His glory. You pray with me, please. God, we ask that you uh, send your spirit to illuminate your word, to light it up, to make it clear. Lord, I I pray, uh, even in my weakness, that you give these words your power. You have indeed blessed us in many ways. Lord, make us good stewards of those blessings, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin in verses 14 and 15 with a very quick snapshot of the master and the servants. Here's what we hear in these first two verses, beginning in verse 14. It is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey journey. Well, we see some interesting things in this quick, brief, little snapshot. We don't know his name. We don't know his business. We don't know where he's going, and we don't know how long he's going. But we know he is a person of some resource. He is entrusting um, to his servants. So he's obviously a person of um, enough resource to have people serving him, employees, And he's evidently going on a long journey, and he entrusts his servants with his possessions. It says, to one servant he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. Now, it's important to know that a talent is not a coin. It's not a gold coin. It is a measure of weight. And I think sometimes when we hear uh, the, the parable of the pounds or the minas, we tend to think that this man is giving them a big coin. That's not it. A talent is uh, kind of like a ton. It's a, it's a weight measurement. And Bible scholars are actually very confused over how much money this has, this, this, this amounts to. Uh, the NIV in its footnote says about $1,000. Almost everybody universally agrees that the NIV footnote is completely wrong. There's many different kinds of talents. You can have a talent of copper. You can have a talent of silver. You can have a talent of gold. And accordingly, the same weight in different precious metals is going to be of different value. And so we cannot say with any kind of certainty exactly what what amount of money he's leaving to his servants, but we can figure this out. Uh, A talent is basically an annual salary. So he is leaving eight years' worth of resources. So, I'm not good at math, um, but on the low end, a talent is an annual salary, and on the high end, if it's gold, one talent could be 20 years' worth of earning potential. That's a lot of money. On the low end, if we just assume in our kind of standards, on the low end, let's assume that one talent is $50,000 a year. All right, good income. Well, then a talent was worth anywhere from $50,000 on the low end to $1 million on the high end. 
This is a sizable portion of money. Now, while we are talking about this in the context of an extended um, stewardship conversation, uh, James Boyce, a Presbyterian uh, minister, comments on this. And he says, you know, the amount is really unimportant. Whether it's $50,000 or whether it's a million dollars is unimportant. The, the point is that the master is entrusting to his servants this money, and he's challenging them to do something with it. And it's not just the amount that's unimportant. The fact that the talent is here has a cash value is important, but not that important. You see, money is one of many things that God gives us that we don't use wisely. If we had a whiteboard here and we said, what has God given to us? Would we put money on the list? Absolutely. God, God gives us that. But is that the only thing that He gives us? Is financial stewardship the only thing that is a challenge for God's people? No. I, I would assert that relational stewardship is at least as challenging as financial faithfulness. Relationships are hard. And some people make it even harder. Isn't that true? We have, to, we have to understand that this parable is not simply about wise investing. It is about good stewardship of all of the, to change the, the, the metaphor, all of the talents that God gives us. Whether it's financial, whether it's spiritual, whether it's relational. And I love this. A, a Puritan pastor uh, wrote this extended quote. Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible. All of these things are talents. What are you doing with these things that God has entrusted to you? And that's our first point, is that all people are entrusted with a portion of God's resources, and they're expected to use them faithfully. To have influence, money, knowledge, health, strength, time, senses, reason, intellect, You don't have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to have these things. God is so gracious in His dispensation of His resources that He gives to all people liberally, whether they love Him or not. But that will indeed be the basis upon which Christ comes back to reckon their account. He entrusts to all people a portion of His resources and they are expected to use them faithfully. It's implied in the giving of the talents to his servants that the one who has five will do something with those talents. The one who has two will do something with those talents. The one who has one will do something. They will work. They will uh, be uh, faithful in their stewardship of those gifts that he has entrusted to them. And we're reminded this morning that saving faith is always serving faith. You ever found someone who said, you know, I've got faith, so that means I don't have to do a cotton-picking thing. 
It's done. But last week we saw that we demonstrate. You can't say that you love your neighbor and not demonstrate it. And, and, and Jesus said, as much as you have done it for those who are hurting and helpless, needy and crushed by life circumstances, it is as if you have done it for me. He says, talk is cheap. And we're reminded that saving faith will always find a way to serve. I think it's interesting here. Did you notice how he um, decided to give out the talents to his servants? It said, each according to his ability. Now, I don't know that he checked their stock portfolio to see, you know, who's, who's the best manager of financial resources. And wow, he really knocked it out of the park. He had a good year last year. I'm going to give him five. We don't know that it's that. But we do know that there is some assessment of their character and their fruitfulness and their diligence. And it's on the basis of his servants' capacities, their abilities, their gifts, how they have taken advantage of various opportunities, what they've done in challenging circumstances. And he doles out to his servants accordingly. Does that sound unfair? Doesn't God need to be more democratic? And everybody gets five talents. It doesn't work like that. If you are a business owner, you have people that work for you, you've got a couple guys or gals that you just know are going to get it done. You've got a couple guys or gals that um, they're faithful, they work hard, but for whatever reason they're just not as productive as this person. We're reminded, and it's it's a great passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is talking about how He gives us grace in difficult circumstances. And I think it applies to God's distribution of His gifts as well. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure whatever you go through. Friends, if God will make sure that He uh, allows trying circumstances to come into our life according to our ability, why would we believe that He would not do the same in His uh, distribution of His gifts? I love what one preacher said when it comes to how God gives out His gifts. He says, God never attempts to put a lake into a bucket. He, he, don't try to, he knows what the capacity of that bucket is, and he's not trying to pour an entire lake into a bucket. He goes on, he says, the man with greater capacity will have the larger privilege of service, but also the heavier responsibility to be faithful, and the richer rewards if found faithful. Having more is good only if you can handle it. We must be found faithful. So we see this snapshot of this trusting and resourceful master who is giving to his servants all of these things. But we also get a brief snapshot of the servants. Look at verses 16 and 17. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and he gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. 
It's a very brief introduction. But of the three servants, the first two that we are introduced to are extraordinarily trustworthy. What do they do? It says that, uh, look at verse 16. The first word is immediately. Immediately the one who had received the five went and traded with them and gained five more. He's prompt. He's diligent. He's industrious. And he, he shows this picture of being entrusted with this huge responsibility of these five talents, five tons of gold. And immediately he goes out and he puts it to work. He has obeyed immediately. He has obeyed completely. And we'll find out here in just a second. He obeyed with a smile on his face. It was his joy to serve his master in this way. We're also introduced to the third servant in verse 18. And the, the praise is somewhat lacking for this fellow. But he who received the one talent went away. And he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. He's just not going to do a whole lot. He's going to let it sit in, the, sit in the hole and see what happens. Well, this is the introduction to the story. We're told very quickly uh, who this master is, and we're given this quick snapshot of the servants. In the next section, we find out more about all of the people that are involved, because the next portrait we have is of the master returning, and we see his gratefulness for the hard work of his faithful servants. Because the first two servants were obedient, As soon as they got the money, the the master was not even out of sight. They were at work trying to increase their master's uh, benefit. Because they were obedient, you know what happened? The master never said when he was going to return. But because they got to work quickly, they were ready if he showed up tomorrow. They were prepared because they were obedient. And eventually, we don't know how long he's gone. Obviously, he's gone for some duration or he wouldn't have uh, done what he did with his money. This was not a weekend trip to the beach. This was an extended period of time. But he returns, and he comes to settle accounts with his servants. Look at verses 19 through 21. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. There's a little dialogue between the master and the servant in this portrait. There wasn't in the first couple of verses, but here, it's almost like um, parents 
It's almost like leaving your kids at home while you run to the grocery store and you tell them, I want this place spick and span when I get back because it is not right now. Toys all over the place. If you're in our house, perhaps underwear or diapers somewhere that they don't need to be, um, it can be a mess. And we're leaving for an hour to go get groceries. Hey, we might even buy ice cream if you do good. And you come back, and what have they done? Man, you can tell. The minute you walked out of the house, they got the broom out. They got the mop out. They vacuumed. They're folding their clothes nice and neat and putting them in their drawers. Oh, my goodness. Jesus got to be coming back if that happens, you know. And what happens when mom and dad come back? They, they hear the garage door going up. <laughs> And they're standing in the kitchen waiting for you to walk in with smiles on their face and their eyes lit up. Why? Because they are proud of the good job that they have done. And do you hear that kind of note of enthusiasm from the masters? The masters returned. He had given them a large task. And he didn't really, he didn't really define the task. He didn't say, all right, um, double what I've got or you're in trouble. He just gave it to them and said, do your thing. And, and they come up and they say, Master, look what you've given to us. Their eyes are sparkling. They're absolutely thrilled with what they've been able to achieve. They're proud at their achievements. And this is not a selfish pride. This is being proud of good work. And that's one kind of pride that's never a sin. God wants us to honor Him with our work. And these people have done exactly that. They can't wait for the master to come back. They're probably out watching, scanning the road. They say, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. We get to tell him what we have done. And what's awesome is the master proves so generous in both his praise and his reward. Did you see? We were told four things about the master's response to his slaves. First, he simply commends their work. He says, good job. That was excellent. Well done. So he, he commends their work. He looks at their efforts and he says, extraordinary. I'm proud. But then do you see the second thing that he says? He says something about their character. So he says something about their work. Well done. Then he says something about their character. You are a good and faithful servant. You're not just a servant. You're a good servant. And you have been faithful. And then he does what? He promotes them. He says, you have been faithful with a few things. Now listen, if talents are as much as we think they are, and to the master, these are just but a few things, that's got to be a little tongue-in-cheek humor. They have not been faithful over a few things. Uh, They've been potentially faithful over millions of dollars. He says, you know, you've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you over many things. You have proved your worth, and I'm going to promote you because of that. And then fourthly, He says, enter into the joy of your master. Do you know what that is? Do you know what it means for Jesus to throw a party for you? To say, this is great. This is worth celebrating. You see, there there is a joy that comes from serving one that deserves our service. Have you ever gotten so caught up in serving 
that your attitude is so bad that you're not actually serving anymore, you're just performing a duty? I hope I'm not the only one that has experienced that. There is a joy that comes from serving God. Who doesn't know the joy of approval? You work hard, and you know you've worked hard, and nobody says anything to you. Does that bother you a little bit? Maybe it shouldn't. But there is a certain joy of knowing you have done what your master has wanted you to do. Have you ever done something that benefited someone else and you knew it? I remember I was, I think, in eighth grade. We had a family that lived across the street from us. And uh, husband was a jerk. He was not a nice man. Um, And I'll spare the details, but uh, he he left his wife and his kids, four kids, right before Christmas. And that was a good thing. There's very few cases where I think you can say that, but this was. And uh, she was a stay-at-home mom, had no resources, had no family. And uh, my my dad's Sunday school class decided uh, that anonymously they were going to do something for this family at Christmas. And it was extraordinary. Probably about 50 families, kind of one in, and uh, probably about $1,000 worth of groceries. Uh, it, it was like Santa's sleigh at Christmas time. I mean, it was packed to the brim. And uh, because we lived across the street, um, I had the opportunity, uh, which I thought was cool. I was out after midnight, and that's always good if you're a seventh grader, you know, kind of cool. And we were sneaking across the street carrying box after box after box and bag after bag after bag of gifts. We knocked on the door and we ran as fast as we could. I blew my dad out of the water. I was wow, man, this is not supposed to happen. Dad's a superhero. And we, we <clears throat> uh, crawled down in front of the couch in front of our front window and had all of our lights out and we turned the shades just a little bit so we could watch. Mom came out. She cried. And they had a Christmas that they wouldn't have had otherwise. What was neat for me is I rode the bus um, with their kids. And you know how it is. You know, you, parents, you know what kids do after Christmas. I mean, it's like, um, it's like some kind of competi- brag competition over what kind of toys you got for Christmas. And they had no idea who had done this for them. And I said, you wouldn't believe this. Hear this terrible thing, their dad leaving them right before Christmas had happened. And at least for a brief moment, uh, our church had been able to make them forget that. Because we don't know where it came from. There was all this stuff on our front porch. There is a joy that comes from serving God that actually does something for other people. And so when he says, enter into the joy of your master, this is not kind of the gift that you want to re-gift to someone. The joy of your master is a precious, precious thing. We're told very clearly here that though the servants were unlike in the talents that they had received, one had received five and one had received two, they were equal in their faithfulness and in their industriousness. They both doubled what they had. And therefore, they were alike 
in reward. Jesus says the exact same thing to both people. Now, who made more money? The first servant did. He had five talents. He ended up with ten. The second servant had two talents. He ended up with four. But they both doubled what they had. They both were faithful. The Bible is very clear that there are rewards. And that is our second point, that as believers, we will be commended and rewarded for our faithful service to God. I think it does us well to remember the earlier um, kind of clarification that the amount is really not significant. And the fact that this is money is really not where we should get stuck on. The, the fact is faithfully serving with every resource that God has given to us. And, and the point here is not to go, all right, well, whatever I have, I have to double it. That's not the application this morning. The application is be faithful with what God has given you. Because the truth is, you have God's desire is not for fame. It is for fidelity. God doesn't want you to be famous. If your hard work never gets you on the front page of the newspaper, but you have been faithful to God, you have done what you are supposed to do. You know what? You have no control that even the good things that you say, that even your friends and neighbors are going to know that you did them. God is more concerned about your faithfulness then he will ever be concerned about your fame. The Bible is likewise clear that there are many rewards for faithful servants. There are three that I'd like to point out to you. The Bible is very clear that for believers who are faithful, that there are crowns that are laid up for them. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved His appearing. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4. Be a good leader so that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The Bible says there are crowns as rewards for faithful servants. We're also told that there are thrones that are promised to those who will serve faithfully. This is an audacious scripture in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. And it's a promise to Christians who undergo persecution. But Jesus says these words, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's a bold claim. That believers who undergo persecution and are found faithful will sit on His throne with Him. And last but certainly not least, last week in the story of the sheep and the goats, we were promised a kingdom. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So in this picture, this second picture of the Master, we see gratefulness and generosity. But there's one servant who is still left. His account is different. Listen to verse 24 through 26. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here's what's yours. His master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, when the master came back, it was show and tell time. That's not just something that happens in kindergarten. There is an accounting. And the first two servants actually have something to show. More talents. The third servant doesn't have anything to show, so you know what he does? He tells. And he's got a little speech prepared. He doesn't have anything to show. And instead of bringing cash, what he shows is contempt. Because of his estimation of his master, there is no attempt to use what had been entrusted to him. Do you hear what he said about the master? That he's 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 wicked, he's hard, he's 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 tough. He doesn't like him. He has misjudged the master's character because everything we have read at this point has just shown his, tr- his trust of his servants and his generosity in giving to them. He's saying these words and I'm going, uh, uh-oh. They didn't get this right. He, he didn't get this right. The, the, the experience of the first two slaves was that God was generous. He was kind. And he's saying all of this Negative stuff here. Perhaps he viewed the master through his own greed and selfishness. If, I, if I'm greedy and selfish, he's got to be too. And he demonstrates his own character by saying words he probably never should have said. But you know what? Once they get out of your mouth, you're not going to get them back. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Clearly, this cannot be a well-thought-out strategy. Because if the master is as mean as he says he is... Why would you mess with him in the first place? Why would you not make a profit for him so that you don't have to put up with the consequences? If he's a mean man, work harder. I think what has happened is that he's shooting from the hip. And indeed, he's wicked and he's lazy, but he was not prepared for the master's return. He was caught by surprise. 
Perhaps if I knew he was coming and I had one more week, I'd have something to show. Do you know what? When we come to our time of accounting, we never have a warning when that's going to happen, do we? The lesson of the first two servants, to be prepared at all times, is helpful. And as we contrast the words of the master for this third servant with the first two, it is sobering. The third servant is not praised at all. He is called wicked in his character, and he is chided for his laziness in his action. And the consequence is that what he has is taken from him and given to the faithful servant, and the third servant is completely removed from his master. Can you hear the objection? Well, master, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't steal your money. I gave you back exactly what was yours. How many of you have ever heard that phrase? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. I I didn't do anything wrong. What, what, What rule did I break? Not doing anything wrong is high praise for a rock, but not for a man. You don't get off by not doing anything wrong. It's doing something with what God has given to you. To have done nothing is proof of his absolute lack of love for his master. No love, no work. And there's an unbreakable connection between what we say we believe and what we do. And this is our third and final point, that God will judge humanity based upon their use of his gifts. And I think the greatest tragedy in this whole story is that this third slave wasted an opportunity because he feared losing what he would not use. He, would not, he feared losing what he would not use. We are very soberly reminded that those who fail to use their gifts for his service will be punished by separation. This certainly applies to pagans who have no love for God, his, his will or his ways. But friends, this applies equally to professing Christians who are not possessing the faith that they say that they have. The believer who shows no evidence of the reality of their profession, when they stand accountable before God and say, here, I'll give you back what you gave me, but I haven't done anything with it, demonstrate the fact that they want the benefits of a relationship with God, but there is no love to actually serve Him. Some have commented that God appears like a reverse Robin Hood at this point. He's taken from the guy that has one and he's given it to the guy that has ten. The problem is, it all belongs to him in the first place. He is calling them to account for their stewardship. And in all these things, this drives us who call ourselves God's people to answer this simple question. What are we doing with what He has given to us. The poorest among us has more than we need. What are we doing with what He's given us? Are we using the talents that He has entrusted to us with joy and for the honor of the One who gladly gives us all things? 
Are you serving, serving happily? Are you looking forward to entering into the joy of your master? Because you don't just get the joy at the end. You get the joy in the doing. The joy at the end is the icing on the cake. Are you seeking to honor the God who has given you all things? And friends, as we think about this, as a, as a church, we have a special responsibility to be the steward of all of the gifts that God has entrusted to us corporately. One of the things that's great about coming to worship, <clears throat> listen, corporate worship plays a special role in the life of the Christian. But you know what? Before you get in this, bit, before you get in this room, because God has entrusted manifold talents to His people, some of you, before you get in this room, are already blessed. You know why? Uh, because Paul Wettstein has gifts that I don't have. He's got talents. And if you sit next to him in Sunday school, you'll be blessed. Because David Mills has things that God has gifted him that I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not David Mills. The, the Bob Brakefield has things that God has given to him that only he can add to this congregation. Friends, that's why membership in the church is so important. It marks out that we are proud to associate with God's people, formally and informally, and that we have so entwined our lives together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and as the bride of Christ, one entity, that we are saying we are all in, and we are giving to God and to His bride everything that we have to serve Him. We're doing it. Is there in our evaluation perhaps more that we could do? I think that there is. Jesus said something that absolutely blows my mind about his disciples. While Jesus had done all of these incredible things in praying for his followers, he said, you know what? You will do still greater things. Greater than what Jesus did? Listen, I'm not going to die for anyone's sins. But we have the opportunity to take the most precious thing that he has entrusted to us, the gospel, the message of Christ dying for sinners, and that those who place their faith in him can be justified and made right with God and are then renewed to live a new life. We can take the gospel to places that Jesus never want to. Jesus probably never left a circumference of about 50 miles. We're all over the world. Jesus never came to Rock Hill, South Carolina. But you know what? We're here. And we have the chance to take the message of his gospel to places that he never walked in the flesh. So friends, we want to be a church that aspires to do greater things. And I pray that you'll join me with that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. Uh, Lord, it's a, it's a story we're familiar with. <clears throat> Help that not to be an obstacle for us hearing your word. So Lord, as we think about being faithful with our finances, as we think about being faithful with our family, faithful in our workplace, faithful in our neighborhoods, faithful using everything that you've entrusted to us, Lord, help us to understand the point of this passage. And that is that we have a great and glorious job to do, serving you. 
with joy for your honor. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.